This is, uh, for those keeping score, AUL number 10. Um, this is the last of the upper limb before the upper limb quiz. Um, and this one is just briefly, really, an overview of the carpus and a bit of the neurology of the upper limb as a review before doing an upper limb quiz. After that, we'll take a couple of weeks off and then uh, begin the lower limb. Um, I'd like to remind those who are interested in making a contribution that they can do so at uh, our Patreon site. This is different to Patreon. Uh, so this can be done at patron, P-A-T-R-O-N, dot podbean dot com slash anatopod, A-N-A-T-O-P-O-D, all in capitals. I'll leave that at the attachment that you can see on the site. But we'd greatly appreciate it. It will help us uh, to keep going, um, uh, which I'd like to do, obviously, so that we can complete the lower limb this year and begin, I think, then the thorax and then move next year into the abdomen and pelvis so that we can have our completion done over a three-year cycle um, and then perhaps revisit it. Anyway, let's get on and talk about the uh, carpus. Um, now, there are some similarities between the carpus and the tarsus, of which we um, <clears throat> should be aware, even though the tarsus has more obviously of a principal value in weight-bearing stability. But there is an homology with other animal systems where there is effectively a proximal row, which are three bones and their equivalents, really the os radiali or tibiali, if we're dealing between the upper and the lower limb, the os intermediali, which is really the lunate in the carpus and the lateral tubicle of the talus and its posterior process in the tarsus, and the os ulnari or fibulari in the lower limb. So that's the basic structure. And then there's a distal row of five bones, which are metacarpals or metatarsals, with an os centrali, the navicular, inserted between the two rows. Now, for stability, tetrapods generally have the postaxial bones of the distal row actually fused as one big bone. So, for example, the hamate and the fourth and fifth metacarpal equivalents in the foot are then the cuboid and the fourth and fifth metatarsals. In reptiles, birds and amphibians, the scaphoid equivalent is often fused to the preaxial bone. So there are these kind of developmental uh, or uh, really um, genetic differences that uh, exist. In humans, the os radiali and centrali have effectively fused to form the scaphoid, and the fourth and fifth of the distal row in the carpus have fused to form the hamate, and then the pisiform appearing as a separate bone is really more like a sesamoid of the flexor carpi ulnaris. Uh, that latter has no real homologue or counterpart in the foot. In the case of the tarsus, the os tibiali and the os intermediali fuse to form the talus with the os fibulari becoming the calcaneus, as I've said. The os centrali, as I've also already said, is then the navicular. And the fourth and the fifth of the distal row fuse to form the cuboid. Now, the movements differ with the ankle giving dorsi and plantar flexion. I'll go through this in more detail when we get down to the bottom uh, of the um, lower limb uh, later this year. But the movements have some similarities and some difference in the ankle. Obviously, there's dorsi and plantar flexion. The wrist is more of those sort of movements as well, but also radial and ulnar woods movements, abduction and adduction. There can be conf confusion about this kind of a radial deviation we're really calling abduction, adduction, we're calling ulnar or medial deviation, depending on how you define it. But it's in the foot, the movements between the talus and the tarsus that are actually more complex, really, the movements of inversion and eversion, replacing the supination and pronation of the upper limb. So that's just basically the way the system works. The longitudinal axis of the foot is, of course, the second metatarsal, 
whereas that of the hand is the middle finger, the third metacarpum. And so everything relating to abduction or adduction relates to that, of course, also the insertion of the interossei. The rest is similar, with each having a protective aponeurosis, a palmer or a planter aponeurosis, and each depending on how you classify it for structural muscle layers, the intrinsics of the first and fifth digit, the long flexors and homologous adductor, that's either pollicis or halusis, and three palmar or plantar and four dorsal interossei. That's basically the way the hand and the foot are structured. Uh, there are some extra foot muscles like the extensor digitorum brevis and part of that really the extensor halusis brevis as well as the somewhat unique quadratus plantae or flexor accessorius which comes from the two heads of the calcaneus as well as a shift in the tendon pull because of the sustentaculum tali, the flexor halusis longus then takes a a, a detour around that and has a much more expansive role um, with its facial extensions in forming the stability of the medial arch and medial aspect of the foot. If we were to look for homology, the extensor indices would be an equivalent, I suppose, to the extensor digitorum brevis in the foot. The significance of the medial and lateral foot stability arches is, of course, more functional and advanced than that in the hand. But the nerves of the sole and the palm are pretty similar. And I've already mentioned in another podcast some of the differences between the superficial and deep branches of the ulnar nerve compared to the lateral plantar nerve. The cutaneous divisions of the post-axial one and a half digits is actually the same if you look at that. The preaxial cutaneous branches to the three and a half digits is also much the same. And the medial plantar and the median nerve are pretty homologous in supplying the motor aspects of the intrinsics and the abductors of the first digit, which are pretty similar. There is a difference in the lumbrical supply. Normally the median nerve has a kind of 2-2, but sometimes a 1-3 approach. Uh, and the comparisons with the ulnar nerve and the lateral plantar nerve are also there, but they're a little less strict than the comparisons between the median nerve and the medial plantar nerve. The lateral plantar's superficial branch, of course, supplies more muscle than its hand counterpart, the superficial branch of the ulnar nerve, uh, the flexor digiti minimi, and the interossei of the fourth space, that's the third plantar and fourth dorsal interosseus in the foot, are innervated by the superficial branch of the lateral plantar nerve, whereas the superficial branch of the ulnar nerve will only really innervate that cutaneous muscle if it exists, the palmaris brevis, and then have no other motor innervation. Now, I suppose <coughs> that's basically an overview of the foot and hand, some similarities. We can address some of the bones of the carpus here. You should try, I think, and get access to an articulated hand, maybe some of the individual bones, but we don't tend to ask much about each of those. The carpus has two discrete rows, as you can see, but consists of eight bones. If you're looking at the X-ray, these come out often one at a time, so that, roughly speaking, the number that's visible is the age of the child. The whole thing is cartilaginous at birth, unlike the tarsus, but the ossification order is typically from a single centre with the largest bone, the capitate, ossifying in the first year and the smallest, the pisiform, in the tenth year. It's a pretty easy sort of thing to remember. So count the number of bones on a, on a plain X-ray and you can tell the age of the child. The order is in accordance with size in terms of ossification, as I've said, at about yearly intervals, so then as the hamate, the triquetrum, the lunate, the trapezium, the scaphoid, and the trapezoid. So think of CH trike L trap S trapezoid P. If you look at the row of carpal bones on the flexor side, they're ridged because of the flexor tendons, and quite different really from the appearance of the extensor surface. 
The proximal row of bones, as we know, is, of course, the scaphoid, the lunate, and the triquetrum. And these are the bones that articulate at the wrist, the radiocarpal joint, articulating with the triquetrum only in full adduction, full medial um, uh, rotation, if you like, medial uh, adduction, adduction. The pisiform articulates by a separate synovial joint. The articulating surfaces of the radiocarpal um, uh, joint are such that this part of the carpus is more extensive dorsally than ventrally, so that the extensor movement is a little bit wider. It's a bit more extensive than flexion. And you can see that on your hand. You can extend more than you can flex, and that's because of the articular surface um, being more extensive dorsally. The forebones of the distal row include, as we know, the trapezium, the trapezoid, the capitate, and the hamate. And it continues to surprise me how little of this our students seem to recall. I don't quite know why. But it's really relevant if you're looking at injuries around the wrist and you're seeing those in the emergency room. The S-shaped joint between the two rows is the mid-carpal joint, and its equivalent in the foot is the mid-tarsal. And knowledge of this anatomy actually, <clears throat> by the way, allows the so-called mid-tarsal or Chopin amputation, uh, which patients can still walk on. The range of movement here is greater uh, than uh, on the flexor than the extensor side, and there's a connection by intercarpal joints which have a common synovium. And this common cavity, this is of the mid-carpal joint, can extend into the carpometacarpal joint, particularly around the trapezoid. And so these form a common synovial cavity. The trapezium thumb joint, however, is entirely separate, and that allows a separate mobility. And these things are obviously important, not only in injury, but in chronic sepsis. We don't tend to see chronic untreated hand sepsis, but in theory that can involve the entire mid-carpal joint, but is then separate from the trapezial uh, joint with the thumb. The carpus metacarpal joint elsewhere, as I've said, is common. Now, if you've got a scaphoid, the term actually means boat. It doesn't really look very much like a boat at all. It's not really obvious, that resemblance. But the palmar surface and the radial surface are concave and convex, respectively. There's a little distal tubicle, which we know, and that gives attachment to the radial collateral ligament of the wrist, and also a bit of the transverse carpal ligament. The bone is about, if you look at it, about 70% of it is articular, especially on its ulnar side. And it articulates medially, as we know, with the lunate, and has an inferior facet for articulation with the capitate, quite a big facet. It also distally articulates with both the trapezoid and the trapezium. The tubicle is palpable, has a blunt prominence to the thumb side, with the waist of the neck palpable, of course, in the anatomical snuff box. And that area has multiple little vascular perforators there. They run distally, so that a fracture here tends to lead to a vascular necrosis of the proximal scaphoid. That is, that area normally relies on some degree of retrograde blood flow. And that's the whole point about a scaphoid fracture. If you can diagnose it frequently, it's not diagnosed by conventional X-ray. Putting the patient into a scaphoid plaster is wise and then re-X-raying it. But the point about it is that the vessels run from distal into the proximal segment. They're retrograde. And uh, if they're injured, it's the proximal segment of the scaphoid that develops a vascular necrosis. The scaphoid would account for, I think, probably about three-quarters almost of all carpal fractures. Now, the lunate, um, the articulation on the wrist extends a little bit more dorsally here if you look at that articular surface. There are facets for the adjoining scaphoid uh, radially and ulna woods, the triquetrum, and distally a little bit of articulation onto the capitate. The posterior surface of the lunate is non-articular, and if you look at it, you can see multiple little vascular foramina. These are important, obviously, in dislocation. There is a perilunate dislocation, that's a disruption 
between the lunate and the capitate ligaments. In a lunate dislocation, on the other hand, the lunate separates from the capitate and the radius. And so one wants to check out the difference uh, clinically, I suppose, and radiologically uh, between the so-called lunate dislocation and the perilunar dislocation. For interest here, the radiolo radiologists actually talk about carpal arcs or so-called Gillula's lines, which are drawn on an AP radiograph to assess the degree of alignment. Most of these diagnoses are made by lateral radiography. Uh, there is, for example, a first arc which runs along the proximal convexity of the scaphoid lunate and triquetrum. There's a second arc running along the distal concavities of the scaphoid lunate and triquetrum. And then there's a third arc which runs along the proximal curvatures of the capitate and hamate. Uh, of course, clinically, other things can happen in this region. There's the osteochondritis, probably vascular trauma from repeated ligamentous strains, which is Kienbox disease, the so-called lunate malacia. The triquetrum is also known as the cuneiform, which really means just three-cornered kind of pyramidal bone. We don't tend to look at these separately, but it has a lunate concavity, a small facet for the wrist joint in extreme ulnar deviation, and an oval ventral facet for the pisiform. These particular features actually distinguish it. It has an inferior surface for some hamate articulation, and the medial volar surface, as I've said, is for the pisiform. The lateral surface is flat for lunate articulation. The point of the pyramid is a bit roughened, slightly for the attachment of the uh, ulnar collateral ligament of the wrist, and all other aspects of the triquetrum are non-articular. It attaches the ulnar collateral ligament medially. And uh, I think it's the second commonest isolated carpal bone fracture and a fall on the outstretched hand. The pisiform, we all know, it's effectively a sesamoid bone, although not strictly since it does have a specific articulation, but it has four surfaces, a dorsal for triquetral articulation, a palmar attaching the transverse carpal ligament, uh, which is uh, uh, then the uh, flexor carpal maris attaching there and also the abductor digiti minimi, a concave lateral surface, and a rough convex medial surface. Um, of course, uh, part of this is an attachment of the flexor retinaculum. There's a, uh, the name pisum actually means P-shaped, which is probably pretty accurate. The trapezium comes from really from the Greek meaning a little table. That's homologous to the first distal carpal bone of reptiles and amphibians, as I briefly earlier mentioned. It articulates with the adjacent trapezoid and with the sca scaphoid. That saddle articulation with the trapezium is for the thumb metacarpal as the principal carpometacarpal joint, which, as we've said, is a separate synovial joint with a small articulation, sometimes with the index metacarpal base. The superior surface articulation with the scaphoid inferior surfaces oval or concave from side to side and convex from before backward like a saddle joint, as I've said. The ridge on the palmar side gives origin to the opponens pollicis, the abductor pollicis brevis and the flexor pollicis brevis, as well as we know the um, giving, <coughs> giving attachment to the flexor retinaculum. And medially, the two facets are for the trapezoid and the base of the second metacarpal. The anterior tubicle uh, of this bone tends to attach the abductor pollicis brevis. There's a flexor crest, as I've said, which is the attachment of the flexor retinaculum, and part of the origin of these thena muscles, and the area is also grooved here, if you look at the front of it, by the flexor carpi radialis tendon, which is going to, on to insert into the base of the second and third metacarpal. The bone has been removed, that is the trapezium for arthritis, for example, after a Bennett's fracture. And that can usually be readily done by a snuffbox approach. The trapezoid uh, is really homologous with the second distal carpal of reptiles and amphibians. The superior surface articulates with the scaphoid, 
the inferior surface with the second metacarpal. That's pretty easy. And the dorsal and palmar surfaces of this bone are not articular. There's a lateral surface which articulates with the trapezium and the concave medial surface which articulates with the capitate. It's kind of wedged between the trapezium and the capitate. So there's a scaphoid proximal articulation and a distal index metacarpal articulation. It's kind of wedged into that region. It's much larger dorsally and squeezed into position if you look at the articulated hand so that its ventral surface is like a point, really. Uh, and in that sense, it's a bit similar to the intermediate cuneiform in the foot. Now, the capitate has the trapezoid and the scaphoid laterally and the hamate medially. And it has a round distal head, if you look at it, which articulates with the base of the middle metacarpal largely. There's a little bit of the ring metacarpal as well, not much. And it can rarely articulate with the index. Uh, proximal lunate articulation, distal with the divided ridges and facets, as I've said, for the second, third and fourth metacarpals. There's a dorsal rough broad surface a narrow palmar surface which attaches part of the adductor pollicis and a lateral surface which articulates with the lesser multi-angular antero-inferior uh, margin attaching the interosseous ligament and a proximal scaphoid articulation. Medially it articulates uh, uh, with the hamate. Um, then you've got the hamate um, that obviously... Uh, with the capitate as part of the S-shaped mid-carpal joint that I've already mentioned. There's articulation here with the triquetrum and the fourth and fifth metacarpals. The hook, or the hamulus of the hamate, projects onto the anterior surface, non-articular surface, which it gives attachment, as we know, to the flexor retinaculum and forms the lateral wall of Guyon's canal, uh, which is relevant in ulnar nerve um, uh, compression syndrome and also gives attachment to the hypothenar muscles. Proximally, the hamate articulates with the lunate. The distal surface articulates with the fourth and fifth metacarpals medially, of course, with the triquetrum and laterally with the capitate. So that the hamate actually has really effectively six surfaces, if you think about it, the medial and lateral proximal and distal and palmar and dorsal. There are very strong piezohamate ligaments, uh, triquetrohamate ligaments, capitohamate ligaments. And, um, of course, the hamate attaches the flexor digiti minimi, the opponens digiti minimi, the abductor digiti minimi, and, of course, is an insertional point of the flexor carpial maris. Now... Uh, we're on to the metacarpus, I suppose. The metacarpals show a shorter, broader, thicker thumb, obviously. The saddle base is for the trapezium. We've discussed that already briefly. The convex facet on the head is less developed. That area has the attachment of the medial and lateral sesamoids. Now, these sesamoids could include the pisiform, as we've already said, in the substance of the flexocarpial maris tendon. But there are aspects about the bone that don't make it really sesamoidal or true sesamoid. The radial thumb sesamoid is the radial flexor pollicis brevis attachment. And the ulnar sesamoid is part of the attachment of the adductor pollicis. We've been through this in the separate innervation of the flexor pollicis brevis from the abductor pollicis uh, and the adductor. Uh, the index and the little may also, uh, as mobile digits, uh, that's the index and middle metacarpals, may also have individual sesamoid bones. And they can even be found occasionally at mobile interphalangeal joints. They tend to ossify just after puberty. The bases of the other metacarpals are all pretty similar, but the middle one has a dorsal styloid process can look at that in the articulated hand and a little ridge or hump which you can see opposite the capitate and the trapezoid. The phalanges, as I said, if you want to check these out in an articulated hand, are two in number in the thumb and three elsewhere. 
Roberto Campo phalangeal joint is concave, also like a small saddle. The interphalangeal joints are similar with the terminal phalangeal extension, which is kind of like a formal tuberosity for attachment on the flexor side of the skin. So this is like an expansion terminally, like a little shaft of a spear. And the shafts of all the metacarpals and phalanges ossify in utero, but normally the epiphysis is at the base of these. But the epiphysis is at the head of the second, third, fourth, and fifth metacarpals. The thumb metacarpal, therefore, ossifies like the phalanges. Now, just go through those again. The thumb is at the um, uh, other end uh, to the phalanges in the ossification. These normally, the phalanges normally ossify as basal epiphyses, so the thumb is at the other end. And these separate parts ossify at two to three years of age. They fuse by skeletal maturity. The phalangeal terminal tuberosities, which I've mentioned, are not endochondral. They actually, as you can see, are very flat, and they're intramembranous ossifiers. So just a little piece of trivia for you. I certainly wouldn't worry about these minutiae. But uh, guys and gals, we are here, so we do include these things and discuss them. They're relevant in pulp infections. Uh, we'll cover this area in the foot, but there are, as I've said, some similarities and differences, obviously. Briefly, I'll go over it later in later podcasts, but in the great toe, the proximal articulation is with the medial cuneiform, which is ridged inferiorly by the fibularis or perineus longus tendon. The sesamoid arrangement, though, is pretty similar. And like the hand, there are two phalanges for the great toe, three for the other digits. The extensor apparatus also in the foot is pretty similar to that of the hand. And finally, in the carpus, as a recap, we said before there's an S-shaped mid-carpal joint between the proximal and distal carpal rows as a continuous synovial joint. And a similar arrangement exists between the distal carpal row and the MCP, the metacarpophalangeal joints of the medial forefingers. Now, the carpomedial metacarpal joint actually communicates with this mid-carpal joint. The joint of the thumb, as we already said, is separate, but it's supported by a strong ligament running on the lateral side, although there are some medial, dorsal and palmar ligaments that are less robust. The MCP joints permit flexion and extension, but also abduction and adduction. The interphalangeals really only allow flexion and extension, and the extension is limited by the obliquity of the palmar ligaments and the collateral ligaments. The MCP collaterals arise dorsally and move palmwards as a radial and ulnar collateral ligament. And the proper collateral ligament of the PIP joints really arises dorsally, it's rather oblong-shaped, and it inserts into the base of the middle phalanx as a kind of fan shape. Now, I think let's have a quick overview of the innovation topography of the upper limb. I want to first have a look at the overall cutaneous innovation pattern. Well, firstly, the uh, limb is supplied, like the rest of the body, in a segmental fashion, with a posterior longitudinal strip by the posterior primary rami, a lateral strip by the lateral or collateral branches of the anterior rami, and the anterior part by the ventral rami. And that, of course, has to do with the basic structure um, of the spinal cord, but also the standard intercostal nerves and their variations, the thoracoabdominal nerves. In vertebrates, the limb buds come out with the lateral strip with anterior and posterior divisions of each. Uh, the ventral ramus constellations are, of course, the plexi. The posterior divisions supplying the extensor muscles and the fusions of the anterior division, that's a fusion of the anterior division of the lateral branch and the so-called anterior terminal branch, supplying the flexor musculature. That's the basic structure. As I've said before, this is changed, but uh, not the principle for the lower limb. Each limb has a flexor and an extensor component or compartment which meets uh, preaxially and postaxially. And in the upper limb, this is marked out 
radially by the cephalic vein, postaxially by the basilic vein. The lower limb homology is the pre and postaxial long and short uh, saphenous veins, respectively, or great and short saphenous veins. Now, in the limbs, as we know, these are innervated by plexi, which are, as I've already said, constellations of the anterior or ventral primary rami, with the cervical enlargement, which forms the brachial plexus, and the lumbar enlargement for the lumbosacral plexus. So the system allows any spinal nerve to contribute to more than one peripheral nerve, so that any segmental supply, a dermatome, the area of the skin that's supplied by a spinal nerve, is not the same as the supply of a particular spinal nerve. So we need to understand, therefore, two different maps, the dermatomal map and the map of each peripheral nerve. And that's also a way of looking at the upper limb where there are individual nerve lesions or nerve compressions and also where there may be uh, effects by cervical spinal injury, for example, uh, on a dermatomal map. Now, in general, <clears throat> the flexor compartment has a richer nerve supply, that is skin and muscle, and that's reflected by the caudal distribution of the nerve being a bit richer. So, for example, T1 is distributed entirely to the flexor compartment, T1 and the brachial plexus. The equivalent is, of course, S3 in the sacral plexus, although that's on the back of the thigh. And these are reflected also in the roots which comprise the plexus in divisions. So the tibial division, as we know, is L45, S1, 2, 3, to talk about the lower limb versus the fibular nerve, which is L45, S1, 2 only. Now, I agree that the skin over the limb is also drawn from the trunk dermatomes, as I mentioned in the head and neck. So near the limb root, for example, in the lower limb, there are multiple levels that are missing. In fact, the line of junction of two dermatomes supplied uh, are from discontinuous spinal levels. That is actually the axial line. And, of course, you're missing all of those nerve roots uh, around the region um, of the lower limb, which then goes into the perineum. So as we know, the skin, as I mentioned before, is borrowed, including the supraclavicular nerves, largely C4, to move on to the preaxial border of the root of the limb. That's the supraclavicular nerves covering the cape area of the shoulder. And the postaxial border comes from the trunk, as we know, which is the intercostobrachial nerve, occasionally also the lateral branch of the third intercostal nerve, and that supplies the floor of the axilla and the inner arm. <coughs> now, the lateral side of the arm is supplied by the upper lateral cutaneous nerve of the arm, or as some call it, the regimental nerve. That's part of the axillary nerve, right? We remember that. And also a direct branch of the radial nerve. And if we run around then posteriorly, we have a strip of skin which is supplied by the posterior cutaneous nerve of the arm, and the medial part is the intercostobrachial nerve, as well as, of course, the medial cutaneous nerve of the arm, which comes directly from the medial cord of the brachial plexus. If we then move to the forearm posteriorly, we've got the posterior cutaneous nerve of the forearm, with the medial and lateral cutaneous nerves of the forearm, one's a directly off the medial cord of the brachial plexus, the other's, of course, the termination of the musculocutaneous nerve. And these extend down to the hand. The palm, of course, has the superficial branch of the ulna nerve, which we've already discussed, and the palmar branch of the median nerve. And the ulna nerve median nerve split, as we know, is the typical kind of three and a half, one and a half rule. The dorsal split is the ulnar radial split from the dorsal branch of the ulnar nerve. Now, on the motor side, the flexor compartment is, of course, the musculocutaneous nerve of the arm, and the extensor compartment, the radial, that's for the arm. The flexor forearm compartment is, of course, the median nerve, and the ulnar nerve also, of course, for flexor carpial naris, and the postaxial half of the flexor digitorum profundus. The extensor compartment nerve is, as we know, in the forearm, the pin, the posterior interosseous nerve. The intrinsic muscles of the hand principally are innervated by the ulnar nerve, with the median nerve supplying only the thenar muscles and the radial two lumbricals. We remember that a myotome is, of course, the amount of muscle supplied by a segment of the spinal cord. The upper limb has some unisegmental muscles. 
joint movements often have two segment involvement. So in general, elbow flexion is C5-6, extension C7-8, pronation C7-8, supination C6, dorsiflexion C6-7, flexion C6-7, and intrinsic sort of T1, finger extension C7-8. So all of these allow you to look at both myotomes and dermatomes from an anatomical point of view in terms of cervical spine lesions or brachial plexus lesions or individual nerve lesions. And that's the way that anatomically and clinically you should be thinking. We're reminded that there's some double innovation, of course, of muscles. These are near the axial lines. They're usually flexor muscles and they can receive typically a little extensor nerve supply because the muscle tends to start in the extensor compartment, at least embryologically, and then migrates. So an example of that is that the lateral brachialis, good example, which has a minimal radial nerve innervation. In the lower limb, the lateral aspect of biceps femoris is another example of that. In the arm, this represents, as I've explained in another podcast, the difference between the intermuscular and the fetal septum. In adults, the ulnar nerve is trapped for a while in the extensor compartment with entrapment of the lateral brachioradialis in the lower flexor compartment. So this explains the variations and sometimes the dual nerve supply in these muscles moving from embryologically often an extensor compartment to flexor compartments. So if we recap as well, we've got a few other tiny little things to say. The roots of the brachial plexus, as we know, they're sitting in the scalenes, the trunks are in the posterior neck triangle, the divisions which are behind the clavicle, and the cords then arranged by definition around the second part of the axillary artery. And those are important, obviously, for brachial plexus injury, but that explains the medial, lateral, and posterior cords in terms of their orientation. The root branches, as we'll recall, are the dorsal scapula, the nerve to subclavius, and the long thoracic nerve which also assists in the definition of brachial plexus injuries that are potentially reparable and which define the closeness to the spinal cord takeoff. I'd remind you to look at the podcast on the brachial plexus and brachial plexus injuries for this. Um, it is available in the early part of this series. The branch of the upper trunk, as we know, is the suprascapular nerve. The branches of the lateral cord are, of course, the lateral pectoral nerve, the musculocutaneous nerve, which we've already mentioned, and the lateral root of the median nerve. I don't like that term root, but that's what it is. And then the branches of the medial cord include the medial pectoral nerve, the medial root, there it is again, of the median nerve, the medial cutaneous nerve of the arm, the medial cutaneous nerve of the forearm, and of course the ulnar nerve. Remember the differences between the ulnar nerve and the lateral plantar nerve and the median nerve and the medial plantar nerve in looking at homology between the upper and lower limbs. I've mentioned this a number of times. The posterior cord, of course, includes the upper subscapular nerve, the thoracodorsal nerve or the nerve to latissimus dorsi, the lower subscapular nerve, the axillary nerve and the radial nerve. And the lateral, uh, the latter, pardon me, includes the posterior cutaneous nerve of the arm, which I've also briefly mentioned, the nerves to the long, medial and lateral triceps head. The second medial branch actually also includes some innovation to the ancaneus. The lower lateral cutaneous nerve of the arm, the posterior cutaneous nerve of the forearm, and then it appears as the deep branch of the radial nerve, which goes up to the lateral part of brachialis, the extensor carpi radialis, and then pierces the supinator, innovates that, and then, of course, in the posterior compartment of the forearm, it becomes the posterior interosseous nerve. We've discussed individual injuries and their assessments before. We've discussed it in an earlier podcast. Brachial plexus injury can occur, of course, in several ways. There are total root avulsion is the typical kind of motorbike injury where the head goes one way and the shoulder another. The ability to brace the shoulders is, of course, a rhomboid function, the serratus winging along uh, thoracic nerve injury. And it can be difficult to assess the supraspinatus early in the injury, but if it's preserved, the injury would preserve the upper trunk via the suprascapular nerve. The types of injuries that we've got are the herbs palsy or the herb Duchenne palsy of C567, often associated more with a birthing shoulder dystocia type injury, and it interferes really 
with the abductors and lateral rotators of the shoulder and the supinators. And the arm typically then sort of hangs by the side in that so-called waiter's tip position. It's medially rotated. It's extended at the elbows for the myotomal reasons I've mentioned previously. And a lateral sensation of the arm and forearm, that's sort of all anaesthetic. C567 dermatomes. And again, try and separate the dermatomal or segmental nerve injury from specific injuries to particular nerves in your examination. And so, again, you've got to think dually in that way, particularly when you're faced with this in, a, in a, an examination of a patient with a, uh, a kind of um, uh, stage two or fellowship type examination. The C8T1 low root klumpka palsy, or so called. Um, I think it's klumpka dejarine palsy, is more the breech injury. The arm actually pulled upwards away from the head and neck, which is a much less common type of um, mechanism of injury. And here there's a typical kind of claw hand anaesthesia on the inner upper arm and hand. There's clawing in those with a specific ulnar nerve injury as well, but the less clawing, the more proximal the injury because the FDP ulna woods is denervated. I'll return uh, to that. We, it's something separate for an ulnar nerve injury. We're coming down now. We come to an auxiliary nerve injury. That's about 5% of shoulder dislocations and also a fractured neck of the humerus. Classical regimental anaesthesia and some weakness in shoulder abduction. I have mentioned the so-called quadrangular space syndrome which can be reproduced by flexion of the hand and then externally rotating or really um, supinating the arm, and that'll often uh, tend to reproduce pain if it presents as pain. We come down to the radial nerve, a fractured shaft of the humerus, or sometimes that so-called hangover injury, a kind of compression neuropraxia, so-called Saturday night palsy. <clears throat> this has a classic wrist drop, although the PIP joints can be extended because there's lumbrical and interosseous muscle preservation and function. The ulnar nerve's still intact, obviously. The area of anaesthesia can actually, in these people, be pretty small, despite the superficial radial nerve actually covering a larger area. But it, typically, there's an area of anaesthesia just over the snuff box region. Now, the ulnar nerve, of course, uh, we know the claw classically due to the interosseous and lumbrical weakness claw produced by the unopposed action of the extensors and the FDP explaining why the more proximal the injury, the less the claw, which I've said. But there is quite a degree of metacarpophalangeal joint extension, unopposed extension with the claw. The wasting that you'll see in an ulnar nerve injury is most seen when you turn the hand over, and that's seen in the first dorsal interosseous and the thickness of tissue really between the thumb and the index finger and that's a an absolute giveaway high injuries as i've said will be associated with little dip flexion of the little finger uh, some additional anatomical signs include that so-called froment sign as you try and get the patient to hold paper against the thumb and index finger the thumb instinctively flexes because of the action of the flexor pollicis longus, which is obviously intact, the median nerve's intact, rather than the interossei and the adductor pollicis. We all know, I think, this sign. But there are some other signs which we don't think about that much. There's gene sign, some reciprocal hyperextension of the thumb at the MCP joint. I've already said that there will be some unopposed activity of the extensor muscles, so the MCP joints are hyperextended. Again, it just reflects that unopposed activity on the extensor apparatus exerted by the FPL, again, with the adductor pollicis paralysed. There is so-called Wartenberg sign. The little finger can be slightly abducted at the MCP joint because there's a deficiency of the palmar intrinsics. It's actually a minor effect of the extensor digiti minimi, um, which is, of course, a radial nerve, so it's got nothing to do with an ulnar nerve palsy. And as I've said, the so-called Duchenne sign, with his clawing of the ring and small fingers or little fingers with a classic hyperextension of the MCP joints, PIP flexion, the, that's the effect of the loss of the intrinsic lumbricals and interossei. So the appearance of an ulnar nerve palsy, some people call that Duchenne sign. 
On the median nerve side, again, we've described the assessment of the median nerve lesions, usually a wrist injury with preservation of palmar sensation. One of the issues I've mentioned before is the variable innervation of some of the thena muscles. The ligament of Struthers, Struthers compression, which is higher up than a carpal tunnel syndrome or a median nerve injury, may have some radial forearm wasting. The classic lesion leads to the so-called benediction sign, where the thumb, index and middle fingers are slightly extended. Okay, uh, quite a lot in there, just in a brief recap, that there's, that's it for the upper limb. The next podcast we're going to have is a quiz on the upper limb anatomy, so I hope you enjoy that. And I'll then take a couple of weeks hiatus, and we'll then start on the lower limb. Um... I'm going to leave these sites up for only a couple of weeks if you wish to download them, after which they're going to disappear and they'll be available to patrons. That's anyone who can contribute uh, so that we can keep the podcast going. I'm particularly grateful to all the followers and uh, friends. We're now um, in 85 countries and I really appreciate some of the suggestions that have been sent along. Um, I particularly liked uh, uh, Don from Canada suggesting that we do one on fascia. Uh, That's a little easier um, said than done, but I'm going to try and get one together on that. I think it's a really good suggestion. Uh, We've got to start our embryology ones too as well. At any rate, thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.